Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. It is a joy to be here with you this morning. And for all those baseball fans, you get a pass today if you fall asleep because I know many of you stayed up way past your bedtime. So um, we are today in Psalm 23. In Psalm 23. And as you turn to Psalm 23, there's both a blessing and a danger of having something so familiar. The blessing is, you know the passage. You've heard it before. It's not new. The danger is that it's so familiar. You say, I know this, and I'm not sure what else there is to get. And so today what we're asking is that God would use what we would call familiar to unravel our soul and to give us a love for him. I can't tell you how much my life was changed in these years right here. For college, my complete trajectory was upended and set on the path that I am now because of times in studies with friends over the word. And I also can't tell you how much gospel fuel there is from the days that I spent in seminary pulling so much from the labors and studies that I had while I was here at Southeastern and in Minneapolis. And so I encourage you, I encourage you that there are two ways to approach what you are doing here. One that will dry your soul and will make God a subject to know rather than a person to enjoy. And there's another way that will establish rhythms and trajectories in your life that will forever change you and change those around you. So I want to come to you today to just tell a little bit about a journey that God has taken me on. I'm not normally, I don't normally talk about myself so much in a sermon, but uh, in year 11, uh, Treasuring Christ Church gave me a sabbatical. And so June through August, I had uh, some time away. And over that time, I was trying to answer this one question. What is rest and why don't I have it? What is rest and why don't I have it? Why in the world am I an anxious mess? Why do I get so easily frustrated, roll my eyes at my wife and my children when they interrupt my plans? Why? And it was in these moments that God was so kind to set me on a three-month journey A three-month journey to understand what is rest and how might I find it. And in this journey, I began to just scour the scriptures, looking at words that would help me get at this concept of what God means by rest. Words like rest and Sabbath and restoration. Words like peace and contentment and refreshment. And just really diving into every place I could find in the scriptures that would show me what God means by rest. 
And one of the passages he led me to was Psalm 23. So I would love it if we could read it out loud together. We've done a lot of out loud reading in scripture today. I think it's a good thing, so I think we should uh, dive at it some more. But let's read in its entirety Psalm 23. And then I'll pray and we'll go at it. Psalm 23, verse 1. It says right before it, a Psalm of David. Let's read it together. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask, I ask that in this moment, If I do nothing else, that I would be an instrument in your hands to give these precious people a sense of you, our great and glorious God. Oh, Father, show off your beauty. Show off your sufficiency. Show off the fact that it is your good pleasure to give us the kingdom. Show off your shepherd-like care to us in these moments. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. All throughout the Psalms up until this point, God has been called King, God, Ruler, Most High, and here in Psalm 23, the imagery turns just a little bit to one of the most intimate images you could use to describe God. He is shepherd. And what is unique about this is it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It means that in him, every one of our desires are met. In him as our shepherd, every single desire is met. There is nothing outside of him that can meet our needs to the degree that he meets our needs. The Lord is our shepherd. We shall not want. And that precious shepherd is Jesus. And as we look at today, what we are hoping to see is that we are invited into in this moment to rest in our shepherd's care. And it's not too much to read Jesus into this moment. As you read the Psalms, you need to understand how it is a book. Psalm 1 and 2, the introduction. Psalm 145 to 150, the conclusion. And every bit in between is pointing you to read the Psalms in light of the blessed man, the one we could not be, the one Jesus is. He is the one, the son of Psalm 2, in whom we should kiss and take refuge in. And if we do, we will have eternal life. The entirety of the Psalms is meant to be read through David to the Messiah and David sang these songs and as he sang these songs his faith was inextricably linked to a coming Messiah 
And as a man, Jesus the Messiah, he could sing these songs as one who suffered at the hands of many enemies and died as one in our place. Jesus was the sufferer and could sing these songs as a sufferer, as a blessed man. But he was not only a sufferer, he was king, God of very God himself. And when David went prophetic, Jesus was the fulfillment. Jesus was and is who David could not be. And so as I read this psalm, as you and I dive into Psalm 23, I have a Savior who has experienced my pain and sings these songs with me as a fellow sufferer. One led by the Father through the valley of the shadow of death. And one, while on that path, ended up abandoned by the Father so that we could have this very promise. He will never leave us when we go through the valley. I have a precious Savior who is a shepherd, a fellow sufferer, but he's also the shepherd himself, the one who leads me and cares for me, the one who in this passage prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemy, the one who invites me to feast on him, the one who is only doing goodness and mercy to me all the days of my life. That's my shepherd. That's your shepherd. That's why the last day vision talks of Jesus in this way. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 17, it says this, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The author of Revelation says the sacrifice will be the shepherd. He will be both lamb and shepherd. He is like us, but he is also so unlike us. He became poor and weak as a sacrificial sheep, but he is also the strong shepherd. Both lamb and shepherd, sacrifice and savior, this is who we come to as shepherd in this moment right here in Psalm 23. And this is what he says to those of you who struggle with rest to find a sense of contentment and peace of the soul. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, rest for your soul. He comforts his children with the image in John 10 by saying, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The one who's a hired hand and not a shepherd He does not own the sheep. He sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep, but our Savior is a good shepherd. He says, I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. There'll be one flock and one shepherd. The psalm is inviting us to rest in our shepherd's care, but here was the problem for me. I knew Jesus as shepherd that met all my needs in my head, but the penny hadn't dropped to my heart. Why? Something pretty crucial that we must get. Lessons are not learned until they are applied. 
I have the same struggle that so many of you do when you came to school. You get overwhelmed by reading. You're learning a ton of things about God. But in the midst of such rich material, you can lose sight of experiencing the presence, sitting still before the living God. And friends, I will tell you this. If I haven't learned many lessons, I've learned this. You will only be as effective as you are affected by what you learn and what you teach. You are not there first to give out information. You are first a worshiper to be shaped by the living God. So after 11 years of church planting and almost 20 years of pastoring, I was asking these questions, what is rest and why don't I have it? And I knew I had a problem because here was the gig. I had a holy hookup. That is, we were given a house in Tennessee at the foot of the Smoky Mountains for an entire month for the cost of utilities. Massive answer to prayer. And here was where the crisis began to hit the soul. My wife and I were fighting to give each other some time away, some time with just zero responsibility that we could really seek the face of God. And so this was my day. She was going to take the kids. She had taken them out. I'm sitting at the foot of the Smoky Mountains, and I'm looking out at this view that is breathtaking. The church is not overwhelming me. It's not on my mind. I have zero responsibilities before me. I'm looking out at this mountain, and I am sitting there anxious. Why? Why was I anxious? What was going on? Friends, I was worried. I was worried about not accomplishing. I was worried about not producing something for people that might try to measure my sabbatical by what I could give them. And this is when God began to open my eyes. There is a rest that vacations can't solve. And no amount of time on the couch or in front of the TV or playing music or biking or sleep will solve either. It's what one woman calls there's a rest that's under the rest. It's a rest not first of the body, it's a rest of the soul is what Jesus says. It's a contentment of heart. It's what Jeremiah Burroughs calls a sweet inward disposition that trusts in your Father's good care and wisdom. It is a peace, it is a refreshment of soul. It's a condition not predicated on good circumstances but on a good God. It's a rest that I was longing for that could give me a peace even when there are deadlines and responsibilities. Even when people are thinking poorly of me or are against me. It's a rest that even when you don't know what is next or you've lost someone dear to you, you can still have a peace. It's a rest that accompanies your soul when your plate is full and the to-do list is large. And this is when God met me. Rest is not a place. Rest is a person. Rest is not a craving for an experience. It's found in coming quietly and stilly before the living God to enjoy him and to know him as the perfect Savior. And I tell you, the perfect Savior is who invaded my life 
One day on my sabbatical, I was at the Holiday Inn in downtown Raleigh. Got a hotel room for one night. It's kind of weird to do that, um, but I did it sitting there. And I was told by many people, if you go on sabbatical, you should feel this freedom to just do things you don't normally do. So I was planning on going and watching a movie. I was planning on riding my bike. I was planning on doing all kinds of fun things that I don't normally get to do. But I wanted to start with some time in the word. And so I just began reading through the book of Acts, asking God to just fill me with his Holy Spirit and teach me from his word. And I got to chapter three, verse 19 through 20. And it's not that I got some type of new information, but it's what Tim Keller says. It's not that I got new information, but it's when information became new. There was a new weight on the heart. And these verses, Acts 3, 19 through 20, began to bounce around in my soul like none other. And here's what it says. Repent, therefore, and turn back or turn again that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And I stopped because do you see it? That's what I was longing for, times of refreshing. Where do they come from? They come from the presence of the Lord, but what must precede it? Do you see this? Repent, turn again that your sins might be blotted out in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Friends, there is an unbreakable bond between repentance and rest. If you do not have repentance, you will not have rest. Why is that? It makes total sense if we think about it. Sin disrupts the soul. Sin disrupts the soul. You know what it's like to be living life in secret, to be hiding, thinking no one else knows what's going on, and posturing almost every fabric of your life so that people don't see really what's going on behind closed doors. It disrupts the soul to live such a hidden and secret life, trying to make sure no one sees your history, trying to make sure no one sees you take that glance. It disrupts the soul. It rots us from the inside out. And the path to rest is a journey through repentance. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, repentance carried a negative connotation. At minimum, it was, I have messed up royally, and that's not a good thing. And At maximum, it was not only have I messed up, but I've got to expose this to others and stand in shame. But there's a problem with that understanding of repentance. It's Christless. There's no Jesus there. Jesus makes repentance sweet because you don't have shoulders strong enough to bear the shame and guilt. That's why he died. 
He died in your stead for the very sin that has gripped you so long, you're tempted to write over it, impossible. And his infinitely broad shoulders carried everything to the cross and invites you towards repentance. And I tell you, as I was on my knees at this bed with Bible open at this holiday end, I never recovered. But God just pressed upon me an image of him as father, an image of him as father who was not saying, would you get your act together and then would you come on? That can be some of our images of God as father. But God came to me as a father, as a shepherd. And it was like he was saying, you have turned and you don't know how you're walking away from me, but you are. And I'm not going to leave you by yourself. I'm going to come to you and I'm going to turn you around and I'm going to carry you and we are going to walk this path of turning back to me together. And this image made repentance sweet. And friends, I didn't know what he was leading me to. I didn't know what was about to be the next three months of my life. But I knew this, God was good and he was with me and that was enough. And the two words that came to my mind through this sabbatical were God, expose and uproot. Expose my sin and uproot. And as I began to live life, it was God, don't just uproot it, but unravel it because there were certain things that I had seen, but I didn't realize how interwoven they were into the very fabric of my life. God, expose, uproot, and unravel. And to make repentance sweet, I read this book called The Bruised Reed by Richard Sibbs, and in there is a quote that helped it be all the sweeter, and it is this. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. It's a path to walk because his mercy is greater. And so as we look at Psalm 23, there were several things that began to stand out. And these are a few of the lessons that God began to teach me. The path of repentance for me. And I know there's a danger in using my story as your story because one, you're probably not as big of a mess as I am. And two, you might just be like, I just don't relate. But at the end of the day, my prayer is that you see more of God than you do of me. And that by getting a sense of him, he might guide you into the waters of rest. But there are three things that God taught me. One, we are too busy to hear, but we are too loved to be left there. Two, we are too stubborn to see our limits, but we are too loved to be left there. And three, we are too wearied to see our shepherd, and we are too loved to be left there. Number one, it says in Psalm 23, he makes me lie down in green pastures. We are too busy to hear. We are too loved to be left there. Although this passage is primarily about the goodness of the shepherd, let's make no mistake, we're sheep, okay? It's not a very flattering image. They're pretty dumb animals. But we're sheep. He's the shepherd. And the shepherd's job is to take the sheep who are obstinate and who are struggling to understand and to do things for them because they will not do it for themselves. And this is what the shepherd must do. He must make the sheep lie down in green pastures. Sheep 
literally will eat a spot to the bare ground and will not move. Dumb as dirt, I'm telling you. Will not move. And so the shepherd, in kindness, must pull the sheep even against his or her will in order to find green pastures. Friends, God began to show me. He began to show me how much I prized busyness as a badge of honor as a pastor. But I was really like a sheep refusing to move from bare ground to feast with my Savior at a table that he had prepared before me. Here's the way it expressed myself, expressed itself. I had to be doing something in order to show people that I was someone. I had to check off a list. My day was good if the list got done. My day was bad if it didn't. Task became more important than people. I was kind to people, but I really tried to move forward to get certain things done. Accomplishment was huge, and I began to create a culture at the church where busyness was prized over faithfulness. Even at home, I would busy myself with projects. Busyness was my identity. Busy calendars, busy days, busy weeks, busy years. A busy mind led to a busy heart and a busy church. And here was the tension. If you remember what I've already read in John 10, our shepherd delights to speak to us, and it says that his sheep will hear his voice. And then I read a quote from John Calvin that almost crushed me, and it says this, we do not calmly hear God speaking to us when we seem to ourselves to be very wise, but by our haste put in busyness. We interrupt him when addressing us. And doubtless, here's a strong, beautiful statement, and doubtless no one can be a true disciple except he hears God in silence. I don't know about you, but with my wife, we have had some times of disagreement And it's in those heated moments, whether it's with a roommate or whether it's with a parent or whether it's with a spouse or a child, you've had these moments where all of a sudden your brain is churning. You've got the go-to argument. You are about ready to slay this beast, right? And so all of a sudden, in the middle of their sentence, you say, no, 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 but wait. And you let them have what you think is gorgeously beautiful and is going to stop this whole thing in a moment. How many times has that worked? (laughs) Not very many. And even more than that, my wife doesn't feel heard. She doesn't feel respected. She doesn't feel as if I value what she is saying when I interrupt. And then Calvin says, Sean, God loves you as a shepherd and he is speaking to you and you keep saying, no, 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 wait, I must do this. No, 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 wait, I must do this. And I'm not still before the living God and hearing his still small voice say, this is the way, walk in it and find rest for your soul. Oh, what a hard lesson. But friends, it got worse for me before it got better. I read Eugene Peterson's book, The Contemplative Pastor, undid me 
There was a chapter called The Busy Pastor. I almost didn't want to read it, but I did. And as I read it, here was the quote. He says, I'm not arguing the accuracy of the adjective busy. I am, though, contesting the way it's used to flatter and express sympathy. And may I just insert here this flattery, this self-pity, oh, look how busy you are. It's worse than heroin. It is addictive, and we need to repent of it and repent of the craving for the pity of others. Peterson goes on. The poor man, we say, he's so devoted to his flock. The work is endless, and he sacrifices himself so unstintingly. But the word busy is the symptom, not of commitment, but of betrayal. It's not devotion, but defection. The adjective busy set as a modifier to pastor should sound to our ears like adulteress to characterize a wife or embezzling to describe a banker. It is an outrageous scandal, a blasphemous affront. Hillary of Tours went on to say, our pastoral busyness is as a blasphemous anxiety to do God's work for him. Peterson went on to say about himself, and it applied to me, I am busy because I am vain. The incredible hours, the crowded schedule, the heavy demands on my time are proof to myself and to all who will notice that I am important. Oh, that God would deliver us from trying to be impressive. I'm not impressive. And I repent of trying to be. My Savior is impressive. And that is enough. My Savior is impressive. And that is enough. Father, forgive us for craving impressive speaking engagements or impressive numbers or impressive possessions or impressive positions or impressive titles. Some of you are in the degree programs you are in only for the degree letters. Oh, may God move you away from just craving a title and use these studies as a means to love. May he deliver us from trying to impress and may he fill us up with a desire to serve and to love. And friends, I grew tired. I grew tired of trying to meet everybody's expectations of me. Tired of trying to be someone else's church. Tired of trying to convince everyone that I am impressive or I'm an impressive part of the city or our city is more impressive than somebody else's part of the city. Urban is better than rural. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of dying on the vine of comparison, striving for other people's lives or other people's families or other people's gifts or other people's anything rather than being content to be who God has made me to be. Oh God, deliver us, make us faithful and get our hands off of your glory. Oh friends, How can I lead people into the quiet place beside still waters if I'm in perpetual motion?
How can I do it? And so what Psalm 23 all of a sudden does is it becomes not only something to teach us how to be followers, but it becomes a manual of disciple making. For when you experience the waters of rest, when you experience the feast and the green pastures, you know what your purpose is. Your purpose is to get those who have never tasted the goodness of God and to wrap them up in his glory and to show them the good shepherd. Psalm 23 is a manual for disciple making. Friends, busyness does not make you faithful or faithless, but it also doesn't mean that you are faithful. Busyness does not mean you are faithless, but it also doesn't mean you are faithful. It could mean that you're enslaved to people's opinions. But the psalmist goes on and he says, he leads me not only into green pastures, but beside still waters. And I realize this. We are too stubborn to see our limits, but we are too loved to be left there. God gives us physical pictures to teach us spiritual realities. And when we were in the mountains, what happened was there were parts of the stream that were really bumpy, and there were other parts of the stream that were like glass. And this is what the psalmist wants you to see. He wants you to see the waters that don't have the ripples and say, God will lead your soul to be like that, to be still as glass before him because he is with you. Friends, that must happen through stillness before him, quietness before him. Some of us are terrified to be still before the Lord. We're terrified. I was. What I tried to do was I tried to be everywhere for everyone. I tried to answer people's issues. I tried to be the one that knew all the right answers. I couldn't let people see the chinks in my armor that I didn't know everything or I couldn't do everything. And then I read this quote by Zach Eswine and he said this in his book, The Imperfect Pastor. You and I were never meant to repent for not being everywhere for everybody not knowing everything and not fixing every problem at all, all at once. You and I are meant to repent because we have tried to. And in this moment, I realized as I looked at my Savior, Jesus had limits. He was in one city at a time. He didn't heal everybody in those cities. He had to pick and choose. He went away to follow the Spirit for 40 days. That seems Really remarkably inefficient. But he did it. And had he not, we would not have a Savior that's been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. We must recalibrate what success is and what importance is and what value is and put it on the continuum of faithfulness. And what that leads you to do is it leads you to be a really needy person and it leads you to do what Jesus had to do. He had to go by himself and pray. Because needy people pray. Limited people pray. Friends, Paul Miller says, you don't need self-discipline to pray continuously. You just need to be poor in spirit. And so some of us just need to see our limits, that we can't be everything for everybody. We can't know everything. And there's actually a lot of freedom in saying, I am weak. 
but God is strong. Finally, we are too wearied to see our shepherd and we are too loved to be left there. When he says in the passage, not only does he lead us beside still waters or waters of rest, but he restores the soul, there's a condition of a sheep where when the sheep turns upside down, it cannot flip back over. I don't know if you knew this or not. Literally, when it's on its back, its legs stick up and it cannot be flipped back over. Craziest thing I've ever seen. You can actually YouTube it. Be careful, YouTube's kind of crazy. But you can actually YouTube upside down sheep. And yeah, I did it. Kind of sad, I know, but I did it. And so this sheep laying there on its back and the only way it will get right side up is for a shepherd to come and to flip it back over. Do you know what the shepherd calls that condition when a sheep is upside down? The sheep is cast down. And it's the cast down sheep that the shepherd must come and restore to its right condition because if it's left upside down, it will die. This is why David says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Find hope in the Lord. This is why David says here, even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you will fear no evil because God is with you. He is the restoring shepherd who turns you right side up, even though it feels like your whole world is upside down. He is a good shepherd and will not leave you there. Some of you are wearied by cares for family or church or school or the unknown future. The list is forever long. Some of you are stuck in deep sadness and depression. And the psalmist wants you to find comfort that he will restore your soul. And because of the cross, there's not one valley you will walk through that is throwaway. Every one of them, every one of them shapes you. It will expose your limits. It will give you perspective. It will increase your longings for him. But the cross renders every trial as a rod and a staff in the hand of a good shepherd to comfort you. And so... Those of you who are like me, longing for rest for the soul, we must be convinced like Moses was when he said, if you don't go before me, I don't want to go. You must go with me. The busy person tries to go it alone. We must be like Jacob, who when he was weak and wrestled with God, he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. We must be like Jacob, who acknowledges their weakness, and the indispensability of our Savior. And we must be like David, who even in his wearied moments, he saw his shepherd. And I believe the whole Bible can be summarized by this one verse, Psalm 73, 28. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell all your works. Friends, rest in your shepherd's care. Have a quiet soul and watch him quicken your heart to love the world. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would still us before you, that you would do with this word a great work in the hearts of your people to be still before you, the living God, and to prize your presence more than anything else that we treasure. Because we know 
that when you meet us and satisfy us early in the morning with your steadfast love, when you do that, we will rejoice in you and you will stir our hearts to love those around us. Do it, we pray, for the glory of your name. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.